we are in Malachi tonight. We're going to wrap up our study of the Minor Prophets. I hope that it has been edifying for all of you. Um, one thing that I think has been maybe said here and there, but maybe not quite emphasized, that I think on the last night of our study of the Minor Prophets would be worth saying, uh, is that the, the Minor Prophets we tend to think of as, as 12 separate books, which they are, um, but we think of them being very disjointed. And so you read one, and then you bounce around, you read another, maybe your reading plan has you elsewhere in a few weeks, you know. And you just kind of coast through these minor prophets, like you're reading, you know, Genesis one day and 2 Corinthians the next, as though they don't tie together. But what's really interesting to me, and we're not going to get too into it here, but I, I thought I'd just share it with you guys, really as, a, as an encouragement for you to continue to study these books on your own is that the, the 12 minor prophets, um, historically, both in Jewish culture and, and the way they understand the, the Hebrew Bible, but also through the ages as Christians have read God's word, uh, these 12 books have really been understood to be almost functioning as one book. And oftentimes they're called the book of the 12, as if it's a book with just 12 chapters or 12 parts, each one written by a different prophet, kind of like an anthology. And, and so if you, if you just kind of go into this and you, you know, research it or have a handy study Bible, you might find more out about this. I'd encourage you to do. Uh, because as you read these books, it does become very apparent that they do connect book to book, that they were arranged in a particular order. Like you'll notice the last few weeks, and, and including tonight, uh, the prophets are speaking to uh, people that have returned from exile. Well, that's not just coincidental that we're now in uh, thinking about post-exile life with the prophets. Uh, that, I, think, I think God's hand is at work, even in the way the books of the Bible were ordered. Uh, and so I think that's something just to kind of keep in mind, and, and you might find encouraging as you read it, to kind of read them in, in unison, almost like a choir. But let me read to you from a, a book of biblical theology. It's a theology of the Hebrew Bible called Dominion and Dynasty. Don't buy this book. You can borrow mine. But let me just tell you what he says about the Twelve, because I think this is a good way to just kind of highlight what I'm saying. The Book of the Twelve concludes the prophetic commentary. It contains twelve chapters, each consisting of the oracles of a different prophet, or in the case of Jonah, one oracle embedded in a story. These books complete the prophetic commentary by emphasizing again the sin of Israel, the just judgment of God, and hope after the judgment. And I think you've seen how we've, we've studied all of these things as we've read these books. This hope finds expression in a number of features. A return to the land, a new covenant, a universal element, the renewal of nature, the prominence of the Davidic house, an emphasis on repentance, and an eschatological ordeal, an end times ordeal, such as a final battle or cosmic upheaval. Not every prophet in this collection predicts all of these events, but the entire combination presents a more panoramic view of the future than is found in the previous prophets. Think of like Isaiah or Ezekiel. Strong evidence indicates that the book has been carefully crafted to link the various chapters into an overall unity, beginning with Hosea and ending with Malachi linking the various chapters into an overall unity. And I thought this was interesting, and this is why I'm really kind of reading this here. Just as an example of how these books tie together, 
A prophetic saying about the Lord roaring from Zion closes the prophecy of Joel and then opens the following prophecy of Amos. Obadiah succeeds Amos and deals with the nation of Edom, which also features in the last chapter of Amos. Jonah treats the repentance and salvation of Nineveh. Micah predicts the judgment of a proud Assyria, which Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Nahum consists of a series of oracles describing the fall of an unrepentant and incorrigible Nineveh. I think, I think some of this has been kind of maybe lost week to week as we've studied each of these books so much in depth. But my point is, and what I hope you'll understand and maybe you know, urge you to read the Minor Prophets again, is that these books are really connected. The Lord has a big picture in mind, even as we read these 12 books. And I think you understand, too, even as we read the whole entirety of the Bible, uh, the, there's a bigger picture in these books that I think really helps us to kind of stay away from delving too deeply into the weeds and to really actually better understand the bigger picture and really give praise to the Lord for his incredible wisdom and giving us a book consisting of 66 books that in turn are written by different men at different times throughout history in different languages. It's just incredible and I think really encouraging and actually a testament to the validity of Scripture that the Lord has woven all of these books together in such a clearly edifying way for his people. Uh, I, I just think that's really, I think that's really miraculous, in fact. Uh, and I just wanted to, to bring that up as we conclude our, our study of the, the Minor Prophets. Well, tonight we're in Malachi, so let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Father, I do thank you for your word. I'm thankful uh, that you uh, have spoken to us through your prophets, and, and that by listening to them, you edify your saints even today. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we consider your word to us from Malachi. Help us to glean from it things that will be helpful for us to follow you more closely and to have joy in the following. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi, what, what do we know about this guy? As is so often the case, we don't really know a whole lot. In fact, there are some schools of thought that would suggest that Malachi is not even necessarily a real name of a real person, but maybe a pseudonym or, or something else. The name Malachi happens to mean my messenger. And that's really telling because this book, uh, on a couple of occasions, uh, refers to the messenger of the Lord. In fact, the Lord refers to this messenger as my messenger, Malachi, Malachi. That happens a few times. Now, I, I think the general consensus has been that Malachi probably was a real person. And that his name probably was Malachi. And that might even be a reason why the Lord chose him to give this message about his messenger. Because it's kind of, it's fun, it's a play on words. And if you read the Bible enough, you know that the Lord really actually loves puns. And so, so Malachi is probably a real person. He's writing in a different way than your typical prophet does, however. He's not so much oriented around kind of oracles and, and uh, more poetic sort of sayings. He, he writes with a little more prose. He's got a little more um, uh, of a kind of a, a story way of writing rather than a poetic form of writing. Malachi is probably a peer, or at least he lives in the same era as Ezra and Nehemiah, the two men who led Israel back into the promised land, back into Jerusalem and into, into the, the land of, of Israel, uh, that they might rebuild the temple. And so he speaks to a lot of the same issues. And why do we think this comes around the same time? Well, well Malachi is concerned with many of the same sins that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
the temple, it would seem to be, has been rebuilt in the book of Malachi, which obviously only happens after the return from exile. And then at one point, Malachi even references a governor. The Lord, speaking to Israel, explains to them that the offerings they have brought to the Lord, wouldn't, they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't dare to give these offerings before their governor. And the time of governors is really a post-exilic return to the promised land thing. So they've returned from exile, but as, as it turns out, uh, this return from exile is not really living up to the hype. Uh, they had been expecting a lot of great things, awesome things, the glory of the Lord filling the land, and it's just not looking the way that they had anticipated. If you look at Malachi 3.10, here's what the Lord says to the people, and I think it's kind of telling as to what their expectations were versus what the reality is. The Lord says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Embedded in that is the idea that there's very clearly a need. The Israelites feel like the, their return from exile is very much lacking in, in order for the Lord then to respond to them and say, well, let's, let's talk about how things can be made right again. Uh, there's a reason why things are kind of lacking. There's a reason why things are not what they anticipated or hoped they would be. For one thing, Israel, despite returning to the land under the incredibly gracious edicts and permissions given by these pagan kings through the Lord's sovereign hand, despite all that, they're, they're not actually independent of those kings, though. Uh, they, they've been given a lot of leeway tremendous amount of leeway to go and do and worship the Lord as they see fit, even to rebuild the walls of their city, which is something you do if you're trying to defend it, protect it, uh, even maybe challenge others who would try to invade it or have invaded it, but they're not actually independent. And maybe the biggest symbol of this is that there is no Davidic king ruling over them. They have no king. Uh, they, they have no leader. And really, they're still subject to these kingdoms that have had taken them out and have now graciously allowed them to return. But even more than that, even as they've returned to the land, their worship of the Lord is very half-hearted. And their religious observances, the things that they've been doing, sacrifices they've offered, it seems actually very negligent the way they've gone about restoring these things to their former glory. Maybe even most, most telling about just how far the, the people of Israel have fallen is found in the way that they have begun to treat marriage. Right in the middle of the letter, which should kind of tell you something, and, and the structure of the letter will t or the structure of the book here we'll talk about in a second, but it kind of zeroes in on some more specific issues and kind of tucked into the middle of it, the Lord has some pretty harsh things to say about the way the Israelites have begun to treat marriage. Uh, they're marrying foreigners, they're marrying idolaters is a better way to think of that. But not only are they marrying outside of God's people, the marriages that they do have within God's covenant people are, are very, very easily unraveled by divorce. Uh, Israel has come to a point where they don't really think of divorce as anything to be all that concerned about. 
It's something they've gotten so used to that, that this is just kind of how you do things. You don't like your wife or your husband anymore. You just kind of divorce them and you just sort of move on. Now, that may actually sound a little bit more familiar to us uh, than, than some of these other things we've been reading in the prophets. But, but their lack of care and concern about the covenant of marriage is kind of a stand-in for their lack of care and concern for the covenant that they have with their God. Uh, as is often the case, as Hosea makes really plain at the beginning of these 12 books, right? So this kind of forms sort of a, a bit of a bookend for all the issues going on with Israel. Now, in the midst of all these things that are not going right, there's still this anticipation at work here. They're, they're looking forward to, they're anticipating something more that the Lord might do. This is not how they want things to be. This is not what they expected. And Malachi speaks to this. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this mystery man this messenger that the Lord is going to send. And he's going to herald the Lord in such a way that you know everything that will follow is going to be the work of the Lord bringing restoration back to his people. And, and this theme comes up again to conclude the book. If you look with me at chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, or 4, 5, and 6, remember the law of my servant Moses, the Lord says, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, there's so much we could say there. But, but here, the Lord invokes the name of two men, Moses and Elijah. Really, the, the figureheads of of Israelite worship. Moses is the man who mediated God's law to the people. And then Elijah, likewise, was the man God sent to deliver God's word to his people that they might repent and believe, that they might actually follow the Lord in spirit and in truth. But you notice kind of what else is, is sort of here. It's just interesting. Verse 6, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. This messenger in the vein of Elijah, who has already come, by the way, and then been taken away to heaven. The Lord is saying that he's going to send Elijah again. And, and this is what he will accomplish. He'll turn the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. Why is that such a big deal? Well, do you remember the Ten Commandments? You remember one of the commandments actually comes with a promise. There's only one commandment that comes with a promise. And the promise is that they will live long in the land if they will obey it. You remember what that command was? To honor your parents. And so, so this restoration to the land is real. I mean, this is, this is the focus here. You'll be brought back in. Things will go well for you in this land. That, this, that's, what's, that's what's at stake. And it'll be because the Lord sends his messenger, a man just like Elijah, who will herald the coming of the Lord. Now, what does that sound like? Or who does that sound like? Sounds like John the Baptist right? And so, there's a lot wrapped up into this book, and I think it's interesting that in English Bibles, Malachi concludes the Old Testament, because clearly there is something looking ahead to a, 
a voice, right? Isaiah refers to him as the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness. And that's John the Baptist. It's this perfect kind of introduction, really, to the, to the New Testament, the messenger that the Lord will send. All right, what's the outline of this book? We, we can break it down into really six disputations. The Lord has a beef with his people, and he wants, to carry, he wants to describe it to them in six different ways. Or maybe you could say he's got six problems with them, and he's going to let them know one by one what those issues are. And, and as he reveals these problems to Israel, they come back, they always respond to him with this kind of, I mean, there are kids in the room, but kind of stupid questions. There's just no other way to say it. They respond to the Lord, and it's meant to be kind of funny, because as they speak back to the Lord, you just can't help but see this glaring blind spot that the people of Israel have uh, with all the things that he says. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, there's this disputation about the Lord's love and an elective call for his people. His love and election should actually result in genuine obedience and sincere worship, but they don't. And then chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, there are more offenses that are kind of exposed here. And in particular, the Lord has some strong words for the priests who are meant to lead Israel and mediate this covenant between God and Israel that they have abandoned so clearly. The third disputation comes in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, where the Lord clearly condemns their idolatry and 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 wrapped up in this again is is the ideas of of adultery and divorce of of idolatry with these foreign wives that they've married and with their lack of of real gravity as they think about things like the covenant of marriage and consequently their covenant with the lord then in in chapter 2 verses 17 through chapter 3 verse 5 the lord reveals that he's going to send a covenant messenger who will judge god's people but also consequently purify God's people. He'll refine them like a, like a silver furnace. The fifth disputation comes in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Israel gives very begrudging offerings to the Lord. They're very hesitant. They make big promises, but they don't really deliver. They say, we'll give you this pure lamb, but then they give God the lamb with the broken leg, you know. And the Lord has a problem with this, but he points out that this will eventually give way to very conscientious tithing and really blessing from the lord that as they as they take this seriously and as they really truly devote themselves to the lord and not just kind of pretending to follow the lord that that blessing will in fact come back to israel and then the sixth disputation chapter 3 13 through 4 3 the lord will not only bring back the the bring back his glory to israel but but all evil in israel will be judged and those who fear the Lord will be delivered. Let me give you a sense of the questions that the Israelites asked the Lord. And as I read these things, I want you to think of them with the most whiny, petulant child, nah, not child voice, more like, think angsty preteen, teenager voice, you know? Maybe a little entitled because they, they, they get like a crazy allowance, you know, or something like that, and they kind of do whatever they want. Um, I... Let me read some of these questions. These are, these are, this is verbatim from the, the Bible here. These are the questions that, that these people ask God. How have you loved us? That's in chapter 1, verse 2. How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? 
That's in chapter 1, verse 6. 2.14, why does the Lord not regard our offerings? 2.17, how have we wearied him, bruh? I mean, there may be a pattern here. 3.7, how shall we return? How, how have we robbed you? 3.13, how have we spoken against you? You might imagine the answers to these questions are pretty, uh, pretty direct and pretty um, revelatory. Uh, the Lord, it turns out, is very just in his problems with Israel as their questions uh, get answered. But in the end, the conclusion of this book is found in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. We read this earlier. I won't reiterate it, but he says basically, he gives them two instructions. He says, remember Moses and remember Elijah because I'm about to send to you Elijah one more time. Remember Moses, remember Elijah. Moses represents the law. He's all the law, and Elijah is really the preeminent prophet of Israel. And so as the Lord tells Israel to think of Moses and the law and to think of Elijah and the prophets, he's really telling them, remember the law and the prophets. And you know what that's shorthand for? The Bible. Remember my word. Remember what I've revealed to you of myself. All the problems that you are seeing, all the issues that you think you have with me, but that I actually have with you, all of this, it, it won't necessarily just be solved and done away with in an instant, but, but your problem is that despite the sort of zeal you want to project to the world, you've forgotten the most important thing, which is what I have said. You, you, you fail to live according to my word. It doesn't matter to you. And until you remember the law and the prophets, until you remember Moses and you follow Elijah, this is going to be your plight. But you notice the grace wrapped up in this, right? That the Lord is still going to send his messenger. And what do messengers do? They deliver the word of the Lord. They give a message. And so the Lord has promised to speak yet again through, a, through another person. And that person's really going to herald the capital W word of God, who is Jesus. All right, let's look at one passage in particular while we got a little time. Passage is in, this passage is in chapter 2, starting in verse 17 through 3, 5. This comes right in the middle of the, in the, middle of the book. Um, and, uh, and, and this is one of the disputations. This is the fourth disputation that the Lord has with Israel. This gives you a pretty good example of how the, this, this book has gone so far. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, for example, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? This is kind of the, the tenor and tone that Israel has spoken of the Lord. Chapter 3, 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You catch that? They will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. It will be, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, This happens again and again in this book. The Lord has some issue with Israel. They respond with kind of a little snarky attitude, and the Lord clarifies for them what exactly it was that he was getting at, and they go, oh, oh, right. And then the Lord brings up something else. But here in, in the middle of this book, you know, the Lord has just talked about divorce and how much he hates it. And in chapter 2 at the end, we didn't read that part. If you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've just forgotten everything. The Lord has just spoken to them about that, and then here he pivots. Here he turns and reminds them, tells them, reveals to them that he's going to send a messenger who will, who will actually bring about correction through the word of the Lord. He will bring about this refining that they so desperately need. And so there are a few things, there are a few ways, I guess, that we can apply this book or, or really look to this book as we think about and examine our own walks with the Lord, as we examine how we as God's people today should live and, and walk and act in this world. Number one, by anticipating the Lord's refining presence in all of its fullness. You know, that, that's the hope of all the prophets. I, I hope, I, I think, you know, we've, we've established that at week in and week out. These prophets have really difficult messages to bear. They do, not, they do not lend themselves to winning many friends or gaining much influence among people. Uh, and, and Malachi here, he, he's coming with some hard things to say. And yet, all of it is really bound up in a great deal of hope, which I think is really encouraging. And kind of surprising, because when you read the prophets, you tend to think of doom and gloom, of fire and brimstone, but that's not the picture we get. No, there is fire, but it's a refining fire. There is the Lord's presence, and it is thundering like the mountain of Sinai, and yet this presence of the Lord, this glorious, fiery presence of the Lord, is, is really, a, it's really a furnace that refines his people. The, the people of Israel, they've returned to Israel. The, the, the temple is worn down. It's destroyed. You, you know how the temple began. How, and I think maybe we read this at the very beginning in, in um, I want to say, uh, was it First Kings? When, uh, or maybe it's the end of Second Samuel. Either way, when, when Solomon steps into the temple and he has this whole thing dedicated to the Lord. And what happens? Uh, the Lord's glory comes down and fills the temple in such a way uh, that no one can really even come and stand before it because the glory, it's, it's too much for them to bear. The Lord's presence is with his people in that moment, and it's incredible. And the temple and all of its splendor and glory, but here, the temple is, is in ruins. Yeah, they're rebuilding it, but it's not the same. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the people openly weep because it's just, it just doesn't cut it, and they remember what used to be. But it's not just that the temple used to be this glorious building. It's that God's glorious presence once filled the temple. But as Ezekiel tells us, the Lord has left the building. And, and yet, 
here the, the Lord makes this promise. He, he reveals something of his plans for his people that he will return to dwell among them in all of his fullness. In fact, I think we can say, especially given the way the rest of the Bible works out, uh, that the Lord's return and his presence and all the fullness of his presence, it far exceeds anything Solomon or any of the Israelites, even Moses himself, ever experienced. It far exceeds it. Uh, because the Lord comes among his people in, in the man, Christ Jesus, who dwells with his people and doesn't just dwell with them, but actually takes on himself all their infirmities, including and especially all of their sin and frailty. All the ways that they cannot even help themselves as they offend God. Jesus bears that in himself. And, and just like at the transfiguration where he's caught speaking with Moses and Elijah, Malachi has something to say about. Jesus takes the mantle from them and reveals something of the glory of the Lord to his people in a way that they'd never quite understood. Even there on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter and the other disciples there, they have no idea what to do. They have never seen or experienced anything like this in their lives. And that's the Lord's plan for his people. That's how he's going to fix what has been broken, is by coming to them, by sending a messenger before him and then dwelling among them and refining them like a furnace, cleansing them like the, the most high-octane soap that has ever existed says that they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, just like in the old days. But I think we can say even, even more pleasing, because it, it is only done once and for all through Jesus. Um, that's, that's the hope that they have, and that's the hope that we're called to live in, and really to, to live in as we look backwards, but also as we look forward. We look back to what Jesus has done, and in doing so, we look forward to all that the Lord has for his people today. You feel like you don't exactly dwell in the glorious presence of the Lord now, but the hope, the promise that has been given to us, and the down payment that is already ours through the glorious Holy Spirit dwelling within us is a, is a promise. It's collateral that the Lord has already put forward to guarantee that what we have recorded for us in Scripture, his word, the law and the prophets, will come to pass. We just need to abide by it and look to him and follow him. Second, how else can we live in light of the book of Malachi? By combating dead orthodoxy through fear of the Lord. Again and again and again, they, they offer sacrifices to the Lord, but these sacrifices are really very nominal. They, they make a promise of a pure, spotless lamb, but they give the Lord really the, the, the refuse of their flocks. Uh, they, 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 they even ask questions like, how have you loved us? How have we despised your name? They, they're oblivious. They have no idea. And, and yet, here they are. They're the returned exiles. They're walking in victory. They, they know all the right things to say, they, they pretend to do all the right things, but none of it is sufficient, because this orthodoxy of theirs is really very hollow, it's, it's very shallow, it's actually a lie, they're living a lie. The only way that this lie will be corrected, though, is through the fear of the Lord. I'm not going to read each of, these, each of these passages, but at least six times in this book, the Lord makes very clear that what Israel lacks is fear. And what does that mean? Why are they like, they're not terrified of God and they need to be shaken in their boots more? That's, 
not really what's going on here. Uh, Israel doesn't yield to the Lord. They're very brazen in their approach to the Lord. They have their own ideas of what's right and best and good, and I'll divorce my wife, or I'll offer this lamb, I'll do whatever, and the Lord kind of, he sort of has to, to, to own me as his, pers- as his people. You know, he, he, he's bound to me, you know, because here I am in the promised land. Uh, the, the Lord says what you lack actually is, is a proper fear of me. You don't yield to the Lord the way that you should. Uh, I, I think that's something that really bears thinking about for us today. Uh, the, uh, what, is, what is a proper fear of the Lord? How can we cultivate that? And I, I mean, there's so many ways, so many things we can say to apply this, you know. H- how much weight do we put on how, what others think of us or, or how we perceive others to feel about us? How much weight do we even put on our own sort of self-worth and self-esteem? When all the while we're called to fear the Lord and love other people rather than fearing other people and and loving ourselves, right? Uh, the, the Lord calls us to direct our gaze to him. That, that's the only way that the Christian life will work, by the way. By taking your focus off of yourself, by taking your focus even off of others in terms of, of yielding to them and their opinions, and, and actually fearing the Lord, looking to him, listening to him, adhering to his word, letting his word shape you, rather than going to his word to find what we want to find, but, but, but yielding to him, fearing the Lord. And, and then thirdly, by one of the ways that we live in light of Malachi's words here, by awaiting God's messenger, awaiting God's messenger. Now, this book points to Moses, it points to Elijah, and I think we understand that Elijah is meant to point us, and as the Lord says in the conclusion of this book, Elijah, and that reference, is really meant to point us towards John the Baptist, who comes heralding the kingdom of God, who comes as God's mouthpiece in the world, bringing forth, calling people to repent and believe and look to the one to come, but that's just it, to look to the one to come, right? Looking to Jesus, That's what John said. He said, I want to decrease so that he might increase. I want people to be much more familiar with him than they are with me. And John does some really weird stuff to kind of help that process along. But the end result, though, is as Jesus approaches him, all he can do is point to the Lamb of God. He says, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is the hope that we have. And this is the hope that the Israelites are being told to live in. And and likewise, it's the hope that we ourselves must have as his people. Now, we look backwards in history at John the Baptist. And in some ways, we look backwards in history at the ministry of Jesus. But the point here for the the people of God then and the people of God today is that we would always be looking forward, looking ahead towards Jesus. Not just in his return, but in his preeminence. In the fact that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're to look to him alone. Yield to him alone. Seek to adhere to his word alone. That, that's how God's people are purified and refined. That's how God's people bring offerings that are brought truly in righteousness. Is as we look to Jesus, not to ourselves, but as we, as we seek to follow him through his word and draw near to the person, not just the doctrinal concept, 
person of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word again. We're grateful that you have spoken to us by your prophets. Why don't you call us to adhere to your word? What an incredible blessing it is. I mean, this is really, I mean, a miraculous gift that, that you have spoken to us, that you reveal yourself to us through your son, first of all, but then that you have spoken to us through your word that, that we might know what you have done and that we might understand the meaning of what you have done. And not only that, but that we might walk in faithfulness and in accordance with what you have done and spoken, even as we follow Jesus, who is the word of God, as, as John tells us. Lord, I pray that we would not take these things for granted, that we would come before you with a healthy fear, that we would yield to you, that we would look to Jesus, our Savior, and that we would anticipate all the ways in which you will refine us as your people as we do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.